Greg Masters. The uh, closing interview here at Exponential Medicine 2017 is with John Nasta of Nasta Labs. John gave an excellent, abbreviated talk today, on, uh, and I'll let him tell you more about that. But uh, I'm delighted to ha- uh, sit with John. I-, I-, I met John on Twitter, uh, as I meet many of my uh, really good friends that I've developed in this space via Twitter. So a plug for Twitter, pretty amazing medium. So, hey, John. Hey, how are you? It's so finally, I mean, it's been a long time since we've talked. But number one, right, the first thing I want to say is I want to thank you for what you do in helping codify digital health and bringing interviews to the forefront and really staying ahead of the curve because my my whole talk was about empowering innovation through communication. And you are the communicator that helps that empowerment of digital health. So, I mean, that's important. You know, I think that it's, uh, it's tough work. You know, it's thankless work a lot of times. But uh, I am a fan. I think everybody else should be, too. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, John. Heart, heart speak, heartfelt. Uh, and I appreciate that because, as you know, as a content creator, among other things that you do, you know that sometimes it feels like a lonely journey. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your journey. Tell us a little bit about the John Nasta we don't know in the pre-Twitter era. Sure. Um, I am bilingual. I think that's probably the best way to sort of understand who and what I am. I speak medicine and I speak marketing. And it's really that combination that's important in today's digital world. So early on, I spent some time in college. I studied physics. I did research at Harvard Medical School. I was very much interested in the traditional clinical program. Become a doc um, and follow that along. Um, I did a lot of very interesting work. I was very lucky to publish some papers in some labs and and got a little bit of notoriety. But for me, it was something was missing. Something wasn't quite right. And I felt a career in medicine was not what I wanted to do. You know, in retrospect, my friends think I was a genius. I I, I wasn't a genius. It just wasn't right for me. It's probably too hard. You know, if you really want to know the secret. A genius for not going into medical? Medicine, to leaving medicine because the golden age of medicine was starting to already kind of wane. And it might not be the the education of choice. So, you know, I knew how to say 1,6-fructose diphosphate. And I knew what arachidonic acid was. And ended up in, in healthcare advertising and marketing. Largely because of my ability to write a little bit and to understand the science. So... A little bit of medicine, then a little bit of marketing. And I, I was at Ogilvy for a long time, big Omnicom shop and WPP shops, and um, worked my way as chief creative officer, which is that sort of creative background, chief strategic officer, which is that, that more thinker kind of thing, and then as unit president, which is much more of an administrative P&L kind of, kind of dynamic. So it gave me a nice background to understand marketing, advertising, and even being a bit of an entrepreneur. So... Um, then this thing came along that you and I know. It's called Twitter and social media and the emergence of technology like the smartphone and consumer empowerment, all this really cool stuff. So I liked it. I got on. I was the tallest midget for a while um, and developed a bit of a following and realized that this is important, that the emergence of technology or the convergence of technology and health combined with other fundamental issues like social strife, Healthcare screwed up. We're all getting old, you know? Diabetes is rampant. So is obesity. They're real social issues. Then there's this, this sense of wonder in the world that, wow, the smartphone is an amazing device. 
Artificial intelligence is an amazing construct. Now, all these other technological advances imparted a sense of wonder. And, and I loved it. I was hooked. But as an ad guy, it was very hard to monetize that because pharma clients weren't really paying for that whimsical stuff. You know, they're doing traditional sales tools and things like that. So I left and started Nostalab. And Nostalab is a think tank designed to navigate exponential change. So it's to help companies understand what's going on in the healthcare uh, environment and, and help them empower their thinking, think in new, new ways, and, and really sort of consolidate this eclectic world that we call digital health, which is a heck of a lot more, more complicated. So that's where I stand now. So I run a think tank. Um, I stand on my soapbox and try to sell innovation and um, you know, go to conferences like this to learn. Because for me, it's about being a participant from the inside out. A lot of people participate from the outside in. It's important for us to build relationships with some of these pioneers, with some of these innovators, to be able to text Daniel Kraft and say, hey Daniel, what's going on with this? Can you help me understand this concept? So for me, the biggest value I bring to the people I work with is that I wallow in it. I wallow in the excitement, I wallow in the enthusiasm, and I wallow in the misery, too. So in some respects, you're a navigator, you're an educator, you're a counselor, advisor, interpreter, because we operate in a fairly complex ecosystem. Yes. I know a lot of your work is on the pharma side, or historically had been, but there's a giant ecosystem here struggling, trying to find a way how these technologies enable a transformational pivot from volume to value. So how are you seeing that education progressing, and are you seeing the needle move in those respective camps? The answer is yes and no, simultaneously, if I could have said both words. Sure, look at companies like AliveCore, Dave Albert, you know, that was one of the early innovations, that little device that measures your, your EKG, and it looks for an arrhythmia. Most recently, <clears throat> it's looking for atrial fibrillation. We know that atrial fibrillation is a leading cause of stroke, and when you have a stroke from AFib, it's bad. So here's an example where digital health was sort of conjured up by an innovator, an inventor. I don't know if Dave did it in his garage, but Dave Albert was an early pioneer who was a cardiologist who said, I'm gonna figure this out. And then he followed up with clinical trials. He had the data and the data was validated. So for me, that's the prototypical example of, of digital health success. But again, that's digital health, maybe with a, with a I don't wanna say small d, I don't wanna be diminutive about it, but when I think of digital health, I see CRISPR, you know, the application of technology to health. I see nanoparticle-mediated cancer detection. You know, I see big data. I see artificial intelligence. And, and for me, I still think artificial intelligence is a pretty big thing. Overhyped? Well, you know, aren't we all a little overhyped at one point in our life? Um, but I think that it's, it's an extraordinarily important tool that's really taking shape now. So we're helping shape that. And, and to say it's overhyped and it's not going to happen, um, I think is, is a big mistake. So already you've expanded the universe that one would commonly associate with digital health. But give me a sense, and maybe you just did it, but give me a sense of when John Nosta looks at the digital health ecosystem, how do you define it? What does it include? You know, I, I look at it basically as the convergence of technology and health. So I know I have a real broad, broad definition. 
I mean, that could include CAT scanners, right, and MRI machines. Telemedicine? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love telemedicine. We can talk about telemedicine all day. I think telemedicine is a really cool example of technology that works. It's all defined. It's all in place. It's all accessible. We all have a smartphone, at least, let's say, in the United States, for example. But nobody uses it. I mean, this really irritates me. Because I think telemedicine, now maybe, maybe it's linguistic. Maybe nobody likes a telemarketer. So maybe they think that, that telemedicine is just wrong. I think that positioning telemedicine in the context of I can't get to the doctor is, is very bad for telemedicine because that's not the way to use it. I think telemedicine is a contextual dynamic that lives with your existing physician. And to me, I would rather think of it as a practice extender. I can't get to the doctor or in lieu of, right? Or I go here first. I mean, it's it's this last ditch kind of thing. It's either this or the emergency room. That's not where that's not where telemedicine plays out its its hand. And I think if we could integrate this in some way where the physician becomes an advocate versus a competitor, that I think it's going to be you know, a fundamental game changer. Now, you really want to go change the game, you get out of the United States. We have so many dock-in-the-boxes on the corner and mediclinics and, and, and physicians who have late hours and weekend hours. We don't need telemedicine. So maybe it's silly for me to think of it, think why it should succeed. For me, telemedicine is going is to happen in sub-Saharan Africa where a pregnant woman gets no maternity or prenatal care. But here's an opportunity to leverage simple information on folic acid in, in, in that context. And that could, that could be a big game. You move, move away from that. I think it's real interesting to look at, at telemedicine in a broader context. What about teleconsultation? You know, someone who's going to go and meet with, uh, with their doctor for a follow-up visit, a specialist, let's say, has to drive two hours. It's absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. We should have these done electronically. We should begin to develop the tools of physical exam. And, and start enabling people to use telemedicine for telespecialist or teleconsultation, doctor to doctor. You know, if I'm a resident in the, in the, in the, in the ICU and I kind of look at that patient and I'm like, oh boy, this, something doesn't feel right. I should have a teleconsultation with my attending. Use a video and say, Here, here's the problem. Let's take a look at this. So I think that telemedicine is such a broad initiative. I'm, it's kind of my pet peeve. I'm a little, you know, I, I wish people would use it um, more often. And once they do, I think they'll, it's kind of like Uber. You know, people who don't use Uber don't get it. But once they use it, or Lyft, once they use it, like, wow, this is pretty cool. So, you know, it's that, that cereal commercial, taste it and you like it or whatever it is. You know, I think that's, that's important. So telemedicine absolutely fits in the context of digital health. It's, I think it's, it's a classic in the sense that it is consumer empowering. It levers technology. And then you go to Peter Diamandis and the exponential guys. It's demonetized. It's cheap. It's democratized. It's accessible to the patients. So I think that's a great example. Yeah, the Mikey likes it uh, experience, Mikey likes it. Yeah. right? So, uh, yeah, it's... Have you I have not. See, now, isn't that interesting? You know, when I do my lectures, right, I, I go around, I talk to, you know, maybe a, a pharmaceutical company. We talk about innovation. You know, and, and I ask them... You know, who here uses X or Y? Nobody. I, af I often ask them about telemedicine. And before I ask them, I check with their HR benefits person. And I see if they have telemedicine as a viable option. And they do, and it's cheaper than the copay. It's crazy. I use telemedicine around the world. I was in, I was in 
um, uh, in Ireland, and I had a little issue with a, with a, a mark on my skin. It was an infection or something. Called him up, got off the plane, went to my pharmacy, got a script, and I was fine. So that's game changer, I think. So let me back up on there. So, so if we take a little more of a broad, a more expansive view of what is telemedicine, I've actually used it, and I'll share the context. I uh, was in Hawaii a month or so ago. I had a, um, an ugly mole on, on my back. I had my girlfriend take a picture of it, and I uploaded it to, um, actually I DM'd it, to a colleague we probably both know, Jeff Bonabio at DermDoc on Twitter. And I said, hey, Jeff, do I have anything to worry about here? So I transmitted an image, and we'll just leave the rest off offline. But uh, that's an example. But, you know, as far as Teladoc or American Well or any of the other... Yeah, the usual suspects. Yeah, yeah any of those guys. Uh, I've not used them because, you know what, I have direct access. But if I was living in a rural community where I didn't have access to primary care, let alone specialty care, I'm sure I would have been I'm at... I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. <laughs> Give me something. Um, I use Amazon Prime. I can go to Barnes & Noble and buy the book. Right? I have immediate accessibility to the bookstore, just like you have immediate accessibility to your physician or MediClinic. I think that, that there's a, a, a game changer here that I'm not going to leave my house. I'm, I'm sick. I'm in bed. I'm going to have the doctor come to me. I'm going to resurrect what you and I might just barely remember, the house call. But in this case, it's an electronic house call. So, you know, I'll give you a little pushback on that because, you know, my wife wasn't feeling well. And, and, and I said, well, come on, let's do a, let's do a visit. You know, I'm going to do use MD Live. I've got the app. After it was done, she couldn't believe it. She said, oh, my goodness, this really is amazing. This is transformative. So I think that there are a lot of reasons why, but I still think that, that – you got to get in. You know, you got to jump in with both feet. And that's why I try all these crazy things. You know, so at least I can give you a firsthand um, interpretation of my experience. So thank you for that. I hear what you're saying. I, I, I think that perhaps you and I are not the average consumer out there. We're pretty wired into medicine, healthcare, and all that stuff. So, so, so we perhaps uh, engage. At a maybe, I won't say more sophisticated level, but a different level than the average consumer. But still, it's not a service that I have the, that's my go-to choice on any given day. But so far, my health's been pretty good, so I, I haven't had a need. Okay, so let's, um, let, let's talk more about, um, so John Nasta, Nasta Lab kind of an intermediary, interpreter, navigator, advisor in the space. Um, what have you done in the last couple of years that you've found uh, most challenging, most interesting uh, in terms of the work you've done under that rubric? I'm not going to name names, but I think in certain corporate environments, and I'm going to go broad here, I'm not going to say pharma. I want to say life science. When I say life science, we're talking about people who work in areas that make drinks, let's say, as an example, because hydration is nutrition, shares a border with health and wellness. My struggle has been impacting change, to get people to change the way they think. Because it's, it's just, we are so stuck in this, in this rut. A lot of people will say, um, 
I'm in a rut. I'm sorry, a lot of people say they're in the groove. You know, they're like, they got it right, they know exactly what they're doing. And somebody's going to come over and tap them on the shoulder and tell them they're in a rut. So I think there's a lot of inertia in a lot of companies to change. And, and going back to what I said earlier, the brand managers themselves are not leveraging the technology in their own lives. They're not using apps. Now, I, don't know why, I don't know why a pharma company wouldn't have an internal marketing app that everybody on the brand team uses to communicate and send messages. Just so they'll, they'll understand what an app is. So, so that's been a big struggle for me. Um, some of the other, other challenges have been small companies. Some of the startups, I think there's a misappropriation of funds. Inappropriate use, not inappropriate, but the funds are being skewed to the device. And they're not doing a lot of market analysis. They're not spending time on how to position their product. And this goes to the heart of what I talked about today. I said a lot of us in the innovation space in health are winking in the dark. Yeah, we know we're doing it, but no one else does. And I, that's such a tragedy because unless an idea is makes its way to the marketplace, what the hell good is it? And the diffusion of innovation, uh, some people call it marketing, and they don't like marketing because somehow that that impinges upon their grand status as a clinician or as an innovator. Ah, that's just nonsense. You know, when I was when I was um, standing in front of the audience today, I wanted to ask them about their their Steve Jobs moment. We all, at some point in our life, think we're Steve Jobs or have a an epiphany that we want to change the world, especially in the digital health space. You know, even I'm accused of that with my ubiquitous black T-shirt. But I don't think that anybody in that conference room, in that, in that auditorium, is Steve Jobs. You know who they are? They're Steve Wozniak. That's who they are. They are technology folks. They're engineers. They're physicians who probably studied biology as an undergraduate that went to medical school. So they, they have a very technical worldview, and they don't know how to translate that technology to a communication platform that sticks to the roof of their customer's brain. And to me, that's a real tragedy. They think they can because they're often, you know, you know the innovator type, will create this great thing, and there are two myths. One is build it and they will come, right? That, that's just wrong. We know that about almost any category. Number two is that, oh, that's just marketing. That's just sort of, strat I can figure that. I can do that. I did the hard part. Now we'll do some pictures and a headline. And, and I think that's really, really a, a bad way to look at it um, because there is a craft to, to communicating well. I'll give you an example, a positioning statement. And my pet peeve is about positioning. And most pharmaceutical marketers, most clinicians, when asked to position a brand, do something called Bob. They bring along Bob, and Bob is a bundle of benefits. What they're actually doing is articulating a product profile. They're saying all of the things at once. Safe, effective, well-tolerated, once a day, whatever it is. Now, now the marketing antithesis of that is Volvo, right? Volvo stands for one thing, one word. We can say it in one word, safety. But when we go back to that, that bundle of benefits positioning statement, the problem is that, number one, if I threw five tennis balls at you, you'd catch none of them. If I threw one, you'd catch it. It's the same thing with communication. So it's not going to be remembered. It's not effective. That's number one. Number two is, and you'll see this all over in the life science industry, when you position around such a, a vast bundle of benefits, there's no core iconography 
that can reflect that. So if I say safe, okay, I could think of interesting visuals around safety. If I say safe and cheap, it gets weird. If I say safe and cheap and on formulary, what does formulary mean, right? So, so what ends up emerging is the prototypical, the quintessential pharmaceutical ad that I hate, and that's the smiling patient. And then, of course, the smiling patient, because we're in a patient-centric world and everything's got to be about the patient, which I disagree with anyway, it's a picture of the patient with their hands up saying, I've got my life back. It's laddered up to ethereal nonsense. And the interesting thing is, Antidepressant drugs, say it, I've got my life back. ED drugs, say it, I've got my life back. Uh, RA drugs, say it, I've got my life back. So it becomes extraordinarily undifferentiated. So a single-minded positioning gives you the power of extraordinary creative articulation. And let's go back to that Steve Jobs moment. You know, we want to be Steve Jobs. We want to be the innovator who changes the world. And one of the things he did is he articulated that vision with brilliant advertising. You know, think different. The Picasso, those beautiful images, you know, that you remember. And the interesting thing is they showed a picture of Einstein or they showed a picture of Gandhi. And in Gandhi's hands was a spinning wheel. It wasn't technology. So we're so compelled to show our device or show these images, and that's just fundamentally wrong. So, so for me, I know this is a long-winded answer, but it's, it's, I think it's real important is that we have to communicate effectively because we're not doing our innovation justice. And, and for me, that's really essential. So let me try this with you. So we talked digital health, but what came before digital health was wireless this, mHealth that, rolled up into digital health, which has a range of definitions, as we've already heard. Uh, is this the end? Or how will that intersect with the kinds of things we're hearing at Exponential Medicine, talking about exponential technologies, uh, robotics, deep learning, machine learning, AI, all this stuff. How does that sort of factor in here and drive the bilinguality of medicine and marketing five years out? Well, a couple things. I think that digital health will go away. It's just going to be health. You know, back in the old days, we had a a website art director, you know, a digital art director, and then a print art director. And, and everything would be print, and then we'd give it to the digital art director who, who, who she or she would do the magic. That, that's gone. There's only an art director. We have digital health. I think it's only going to be health because the technology be, will become so readily assimilated into the practice of medicine. And there'll always be an innovation curve. There'll always be new entries. But I, I think that... Um, that the terms become an accident of language and not a practical application to clinical medicine. John, let's let's talk a little bit about the nature of innovation since we're at exponential medicine. And uh, what do you see out there and do you have any concerns? Remember like the dot com, you know, put a dot com at the end of your name and you had a greater valuation. I think blockchain is the same way today. It's like, we're doing something, financial, drug distribution, and it's a blockchain technology. So it's almost like people feel they have to... So every pharma company now has an accelerator. You know, and they call it something like a collaboratory or some witty kind of name. And, and while I applaud that, I think that's good. I think, I think that people are sort of applying generic thinking to the business of innovation. Isn't that just intrinsically weird, right? We're going to innovate, 
but we're going to apply the model that everybody's using to innovate. So for me, I, I think that we have to take a look at some of these, some of these accelerators and, and be careful the way we craft them. So for me, if you think about it, different, think of it as a mixing board, a sounding board, where you're mixing the sound. And each of the channels is a different parameter of innovation. For example, creativity. So, you know, maybe high, maybe low on your mixing board. Structure. Structure, you know, if, if you have intrinsic creativity, let's say you're at a Google, you may want to actually push that creativity down and add a little structure. But if you're at a traditional pharma company, right, you want to modulate that. So I think there are a lot of parameters that need to be carefully examined because you can't just apply an innovation model, put 10 people in a room, hire or, or promote somebody who's been a brand manager and, and the brand is off patent now and, and you know, management looks around and the CEO said, we, we, we need one of those things. What's it called? What's it called? Uh, elevator? No, accelerator. That's it. I thought it was elevator. And they say, who can run this? And there's a guy who's, you know, whose brand now might have expired, who happens to like computers, you know, or, or you know, conversing on Twitter. They say, okay, okay, John, go ahead, run with that. I, I think that I see it time and time and time again. It really bothers me. So that's number one. I think that we have to look at these accelerators and craft them around the need of the company and, and the needs of a, sort of the therapeutic category that they are um, that they're in. The, the other one for me is I find that innovation is not always big and bold. So, you know, we have sort of Elon Musk, maybe, or go back to, to Steve Jobs or uh, Richard Branson. You know, all these innovators are, are pretty bold, right? They'll, they'll tell you to go to hell pretty quickly, right? This is my vision. We're going to do it my way. I don't know if that's correct. I think that innovation in the context of health, in the context of a mom who has a child with cancer, in the context of an elderly man who's got heart failure, sometimes that innovation is more subdued. It's quiet. It's introspective. And the wrong big mouth can squash innovation. So my point is that innovation can be fragile, particularly in the context of health where we're talking about things that are so emotional and personal. So, so that's kind of number two. And, and what, what I find is, is often happening is that we're mistaking innovation for consensus. So they get everybody in a room and they all vote. What's the best idea? All right, so the app for X or Y wins. That's not innovation. You know, that's, that's pushing things to the, to the mushy middle. I was thinking the lowest common denominator. Yeah, and, you know, look, if you want a white house and I want a red house, let's make a pink house. Isn't that just stupid? The idea is to find that center point, right? And, and people congregate around that idea, around that average, that intellectual average. And then, then you find the idea out on, on the fringe. Now, sometimes that innovator out on the fringe will stand on a soapbox and yell, I got it. Right? That's, that's Elon Musk. Sometimes that innovator is a man like Nikola Tesla. He's a fragile, mystical genius who got beaten up by Thomas Edison because Thomas Edison was more aggressive. So I think that we have to recognize that we, that we move to that point of innovation and we have to coddle and nurture innovation sometimes. You know, when you're talking about issues like health and life and death. So given that fragility, 
And given the initial wave of innovation centers were typically untethered, untethered from a health system, untethered from a health plan, untethered from a pharma group, um, do you have a preference as to where you think it's less fragile? Is it nested? Is it independent? Is it some hybrid? I, I think it's probably a little bit of all. I think it's recognizing that it's not a generic formula. And I, I think that people look to innovation as kind of a big, bold, change the world initiative. When I, when I don't think it is, I think innovation often whimpers as a cry of desperation to a patient with a condition that can't be treated. And, and we have to look there. So I think that health is unique. And, and we looked outside. You know, everybody talks about Amazon and Apple as the examples of innovation in the life science industry. You know, Apple's coming up with, with, with their watch, or Amazon is going to uh, go after PM, you know, uh, pharmacy benefit managers and re, um, you know, recreate drug distribution. That's true. You know, the big boys do innovate in interesting ways, but I think that innovation is, is found at the fringes of health and wellness. And I, I, I don't know if we, if we give that enough attention many times. Let me ask you this as someone who's got pharma background. Uh, do you think they're going to make the pivot from pushing pills, unit sales, to skin in the game with quality outcomes? You know, you're looking at immuno-oncology is a great example. Immuno-oncology is where you take your own immune cells, harvest them, cook them in a bioreactor, and put them back and treat a cancer. So immuno-oncology is a huge breakthrough. The problem is it's $475,000. For therapy, a half a million dollars. Now, I guess it, per dose, per, per per treatment regimen. Yeah, so that that's that's real interesting because if I guess if you look at it, if you're a 30 year old mom with cancer and I can give you your life back, that might be worth five hundred thousand dollars. But pharma is putting skin in the game by saying if you don't have a responder after X number of doses, we'll discount it or give you your money back. So. You know, now maybe that's that's in, in stakes where, where the dollars are so high, but I, I think we're, we're going to begin to see it. I, I'm not I'm not sure that pharma is going to be completely reinvented. I don't think it it has to. I think what we need to do is look at the pharmaceutical um, process and intercede at points where technology best offers a solution. So I don't think we have to flip them inside out. I think let's look at a clinical trial, for example. Perhaps technology might play a really good role in selecting a drug candidate by a genomic-mediated decision. So in other words, we know that, that this drug is going to be working in this type of patient population. And then we have a traditional drug development program. But when it comes to patient recruitment for the clinical trial, that's where we can use social media or crowdsourcing or some of those dynamics. So I don't think that technology has to go in and invade and intrude pharma across every domain. Because let's face it, pharma does a lot of good. They save a lot of lives. So I think technology will have to find the spots where it can do the best. So, you know, I think pharma will evolve. I think that, um, that there'll be some, some real interesting game changers. I think, I think we'll move away from treating a disease to finding that disease earlier as like a stage zero disease and then either fixing it at the get-go or avoiding it at the get-go or replacing something. So right now, if we have a bad heart, we nurture it and foster it, take care of it till it dies. Kind of like having a flat tire and putting 
a new patch on it and a new patch on it and I gotta pull over and put a new patch on it well why don't we change the tire and I think with systems biology we're looking at regenerative medicine and, and fundamental transformative ways where we can change the organ so on the one hand, a lot of what we talk about here, machine learning, these exponential technologies, blockchain, are abstractions for many, including me. On the other hand, some of the highest impact comes from simple kinds of changes. Let me ask you this, where is or is there low-hanging fruit here? Look, sure, but go to, the, go to sub-Saharan Africa and take care of women um, at high risk of, of of uh, premature labor. You know, look at developing countries, look at rural areas where the ability to speak with an oncologist or to speak with a cardiologist. Look at, at drug devices like pacemakers where interrogation can be mediated by, by a telemedicine kind of dynamic. I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, so I'm not, I'm not afraid. I think the intrusion of, tele, of, the intrusion of digital health into a, a well-oiled medical machine and, and the United States is a well-oiled medical machine. It, it creaks. It costs a lot of money to keep running. But it's still, you know, it's reasonable. You know, when people get sick around the world, where do they go? They come here. And so I, th I think that, that there's a lot of opportunity to find the low-hanging fruit. I think that, that as we look around the world, as we become globalized, the opportunity to use digital health you know, in a variety of circumstances, in places that are extraordinarily underserved, and I mean extraordinarily underserved, not just a little cranky because I have to go to the doctor today, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big difference. So I think there's lots of low-hanging fruit, and I think that when we evolve technology in ways that we almost can't predict, we will see fruit differently. So the apples on the top of the tree might very well be the ones we pick because our next digital health innovation is a giraffe. I often experience XMED as an immersive experience, unlike a lot of the other conferences that I go to, and it's probably one of the reasons why it's one of my favorites. Actually, I really kind of enjoy being here, participating. Tell me a little bit about what you've experienced here the last couple days and what you're going to think about on that plane trip home. <laughs> I'm going to relax on that plane ride home. Okay, so some meetings are 50% social, 50% content. You know, there's a, there's a mishmash. XMED is 80% content and 80% social. And, and, and social might not even be the right word because, first of all, you go so fast. And I think that it's not just trying to get it all in. I think there's, there's a, a method to the madness that Daniel has crafted where, where that speed of assimilation of information is part of the game. You know, it's like speed dating. It's kind of an interesting concept. You sit down, talk to someone for five minutes, whatever it is, boom, move on. And it's been proven to be very success successful. I think that this is kind of like that, where it's speaker after speaker after speaker after speaker and they're the best in the world talking about things that, and this is the trick, you're tired, but you are completely enthralled by the topic and you won't get up and go to the bathroom, or you won't go for a walk. I mean, other conventions or medical meetings, I'm looking, at my, I'm looking for the excuse to go out and, and, and get a cup of coffee. All the actions in the hallway. Uh, oh, that's perfect, perfect. But here too, you know, here too, because 
dinner on the beach. First of all, the venue is, is spectacular. The Dell is just a cool place. So it, it, it makes you feel that you're part of something special, number one. Number two, you're, you're on the beach. You know, you're meeting people. You, you, it's such a collaborative environment. And, and I, I find that, that people are not protective here. You know, at a traditional meeting or, you know, the, the traditional life science meetings, it's almost like the first thing you do is sign an NDA. Before, I don't want to talk to you because like, here it's like, come on, let's talk. Well, I'll tell you what I'm doing. The collaborative exper ex experiment is so interesting. So for me, XMED is, is at, at, the, at the speed of life. It's fast and unless... XMED is about love. Let me let me go. Let's let me simplify this, right? XMED is a banana split. I can describe to you a banana split six ways. Cost? It costs five dollars and eighty-two cents. Chemical composition: nitrogen, carbon, silicon, whatever. I can discuss it in terms of temperature. It's hot and cold. I can I can. I can tell you all about it the same way with love. I can describe love a million ways, but the only way to experience it is to taste it, is to have that feeling. And XMED is, you know, has that experiential kind of component to it where you have to jump in and swim. And and doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are because you swim with the big fish here and they carry you right along. And it's such an interesting experience. It's transformative for me. That's what it is. It gets me excited and it gets me informed. And to me, that's that's the magic, right? Get some good ideas and then get excited about moving them forward. So, so I'm going to associate XMED with love like Volvo with safety. So, so, so um, top line takeaway. Is there one? Um, biome is interesting. Uh, a lot of play. Um, AI is is not as overhyped as people say. I think that there's some real advantages there. Um, mental illness is emerging as, as really, really interesting. I think the subjective nature of taking a, a history and physical and making a diagnosis of schizophrenia or depression um, is so subjective now that we may be able to use technology to accurately figure that out and be more effective in terms of treatment. So I think there's you know a lot of interesting things going on. Um, the people who are behind the innovation are extraordinarily excited, and that, that for me that's the takeaway. That I'm happy to be able to put my healthy future in the hands of these entrepreneurs. What is next for John Nost? I I think that for me. It's putting my head down and moving forward. You know, really working with the relationships, the strategic relationships I have with companies and helping them grow, helping them change. It's getting on my soapbox, whether it be Psychology Today or Forbes, and really being an arbiter of what's going on. You know, you know, you know me, I'm not a journalist. I don't, I don't have that kind of, that sort of, Style, You know, I, I kind of write about what I think interests me, what, what's edgy, but I want to be able to push on those buttons. I want to get it right about telemedicine as being best um, implemented in sub-Saharan Africa. I want to I get on talk about um, certain issues that are important and push them along. So, so for me, it's a bit of an evangelical role uh, combined with this good old-fashioned strategic thinking to help companies 
reach the necessary critical mass and audiences to get their message out. So for those who are following, interested in following your yeah. work, how, how do they do that? So you can, I mean, just do a, a Google search for John Nasa, and you'll find all sorts of stuff. Twitter is still, I think, our favorite means of communication, at John Nasta. Follow me, send me a note. I mean, I love to speak with you. I want to know what's going on. And for me, it's not just about that thought leader. It's about the patient who fell and broke a hip and wants to talk about options to 3D print their hip replacement. It's a mom who's got a sick kid. I mean, for me, it's it's a, it's about engaging with people from all walks of life because you know what? You never know where that big idea is going to come from. So, so Twitter's great, and I will uh, pretty much follow you back and engage you in, in some interesting capacity. I can promise you that. There you have it, John Nasta. Thanks for spending time with me, and really enjoy your work. Great to see you in person as opposed to the virtual space, and uh, travel safe. Thanks, brother. Good to see you. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC.